Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organizational, and human sides of the major issues facing public value organizations in the current world, and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our series focuses on the different ways the COVID-19 pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organizations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia through response and recovery. Cube Group acknowledges the traditional owners on the land in which we work. Cube's offices is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land on which we work and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to Aboriginal Elders and community members who may be listening today. For more information on each episode of the podcast, please visit our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello. Today is October 19th, 2021. Today's conversation is timed just before significant liftings of COVID-19 restrictions that are coming to effect in Melbourne from Friday. Closely following behind the lifting of restrictions in New South Wales, Victorians will soon be able to recommence much of the personal freedoms we've been missing for some time. So if you are listening to this into the future, Chris and I are still speaking while, while in a period of lockdown, but close to the end of it. Our conversation today is with Chris Matheson, the CEO of Edvos, the specialist family violence service for Melbourne's eastern region. Edvos is a non-government organisation that provides a range of services to women, their children and their pets to help them escape family violence, to keep them safe from harm and to help them recover from the impacts of trauma and abuse. Throughout the pandemic, family violence experts have been raising the increased risk of harm and abuse that many women face from current or former partners. Rates of family violence are known to rise significantly during national crises, and at the same time, some of the usual avenues to get help and support are not available due to physical distancing restrictions. Family violence services themselves are also going through an extraordinary period of change and reform. Rates of domestic violence and demand for their services continue to grow. The pandemic has required extraordinary changes to the way services are delivered. And in Victoria, all this comes on the back of a once-in-a-generation period of reform and growth occasioned by the Royal Commission into Family Violence. We're very grateful to have Chris with us today to share what these experiences mean for family violence workers and their organisations. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Terrific to be involved, Tom. Thank you. Can we start by asking where you're speaking to us from? What, what, what's your remote working setup like and, and how have you found it? I'm in North Melbourne and in a city suburb of Melbourne and have pretty much been working from home on and off for the last 18 months or so. Yeah, looking out the window, it is spring, but it's uh, <laughs> fairly cloudy and gloomy, but a bit of glimmer. Melbourne is coming out of its sixth lockdown uh, later in the week. So that's given, I think, a lot of um, hope and optimism for people We've heard quite a bit so far about the impact of the pandemic on family violence, particularly the phrase the shadow pandemic has, has been used a little bit in the lexicon, the, the experience of the lockdown and what's that, what that's meant for a, a sharp rise in family violence. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about the experience in Victoria? What, what are you seeing and, and as we move forward, what are you expecting to occur as, as we begin to open up? Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, just that notion of shadow pandemic and where the origins actually come from because, as we know, in a social media world, sort of some of the thinking around some of these big and tricky social problems are generated often by the media, you know, certainly in Victoria and more broadly across the globe, mental health, I think, through the pandemic has also been seen as a 
a shadow pandemic as much as family violence. And in fact, they're not mutually exclusive. But before I answer the question specifically, I I thought it might be relevant to segue with a couple of quotes from Rosie Batty, who many people will be um, very familiar with, um, who is an activist and, and leader in the family violence area. The first thing that she says is that family violence is an entrenched epidemic that we've lived with since time began, so we've got a long way to go. Um, But I do believe the tide has turned. It's no longer a subject that only occurs behind closed doors. So I think that is um, simple but complex in terms of, you know, understanding uh, in our context. The other thing that she talks about is I want to tell people that family violence happens to anybody, no matter how nice your house is, no matter how intelligent you are. The third one is what we have to continue to remind ourselves is that violence is a choice. So perpetrators choose to use violence and once I think our community, individuals and our systems really understand that in a more mainstream way. And then the final one, and I'll I'll move on to the actual question, but this is about saving children's lives. It's not about agencies and services protecting themselves. And I think that is really poignant, you know, in in relation to me running an organisation that is a service provider in the family violence sector. I've worked in state government here in Victoria largely in the disability area and that focus on client at the centre, self-determination, et cetera, has become really important pre the transition to the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS, but also just the preservation of agencies and service providers in the context of self-determination, I think is a really interesting concept. So Rosie's comment there, I think, is is really interesting. As we begin to talk about the relationship between the lockdown and perhaps some of the incidents of family violence, we can often get into the language that starts to excuse or explain away violence, you know, the, the additional stresses, for example, or the loss of work, whatever that might be going on. And, and we find ourselves using language that comes to excuse what is ultimately, what is a choice that particularly men choose to perpetrate violence against women. And, mm-hmm. and we, we do run the risk of having a conversation like this about the impact of lockdown that, that gets into that language of, of excuse. It's, it's such a good timely point, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, it's twofold, isn't it? Language is so important in change and particularly in social change, definitely. And even if you use the COVID example where we were told and then we were applying responses related to eradication and then the language changed to suppression, how you use language to influence the community and and think about different responses I, I think is really interesting. And then as you rightly point out, that comment about choice, a lot of people would not construct, I think, family violence in, in that regard. But sort of moving into that concept of the shadow pandemic, so at EDVOS, which is the organisation that I lead and and we run services throughout the entire eastern area of um, Melbourne, which goes into the fringes of the deep in the outer east, 
That's for our, our funded service responses, but we also do statewide and national primary prevention education and training programs as well. So we've got, you know, a pretty significant reach. But one of the things that I think we've really understood and learnt and have been experiencing is that for women during the pandemic, the responses that they've needed are more complex from a service provider like us and that the risk that they are dealing with and managing is actually higher and more complex. So there's been a lot, as as I started, that notion of, you know, the media reporting the shadow pandemic. Yes, it is absolutely true and real that there have been significant issues But what we notice is the spike in referrals or increases comes after lockdowns close off. So when restrictions are eased, women and their children are able to move around a little bit more freely and therefore can almost engage with the service providers in ways that they would have pre the pandemic. So yes, there's a spike that we see once restrictions ease, Typically what happens is we would get a referral from Victoria Police that would come through each morning, incidents that might have occurred, and then they come through um, to a service provider like us. They have remained steady uh, over the course of COVID, but as I said, there's a spike as we come out of lockdowns. The complexity of cases, as I said, and the levels of violence and the risk that we're working with are what we've noticed, you know, the most. And our experience at EdVos and across the state is consistent with crime statistics generally. We obviously have a very close working relationship with the courts and with Victoria Police And in fact, um, we've got a really good line of sight with Lauren Calloway, who's the Assistant Commissioner in Victoria Police that has the portfolio responsibility for family violence. And it's been really interesting over COVID, checking in with her around the policing side of things and what she's seeing as trends and themes, and then at our sort of response and, and service end. The other thing I think to note is, and some of this is obvious, but until it's spelt out, perhaps we don't think about it, but but things like if you're in a lockdown environment, there are even sort of easier, if for, for the want of a, a poor word, ways for perpetrators to control women in those situations. And, you know, there's examples of people not being able to access their mobile phone or their laptop or batteries being taken out of cars where, you know, it makes it harder for women to actually get away from a violent situation the government here in Victoria and in a whole range of other places and the police have made it very clear if you are at any risk in relation to family violence, domestic violence, you can leave the home. And that has been pleasingly, I think, a really strong message. At EdVos, we have um, provided, you know, after hours during the night um, support to women who have actually been able to, you know, get out of their violent or threatening situations. So there's just, I think, been a real level of complexity that women have been dealing with. 
is there a sense of, yeah, is there a sense amongst your organization of almost sort of trepidation as to, to what, what you might learn as you begin to open up and as women are able to access help a little bit more readily or, or support than they have been able to previously? Our clients are expressing higher levels of isolation and, you know, psychological impact um, because they have been isolated from family and friends, which typically would serve as an informal kind of network of support to be able to move out as the level of risk increases. And not being able to work, get that sort of support that you might get, like all of us, um, through A, being away from the home, if indeed you are experiencing that degree of risk, um, has often served as a circuit breaker, whereas, as we know, people have either had to work from home or, in fact, not been able to work or people have lost their jobs. That has um, meant that women have different degrees of coping as a result of family violence in the home, but COVID in particular. The other thing in terms of trepidation is just the um, financial difficulties that women um, are more likely to be in jobs that were impacted by COVID than males um, might be. So that sense of hopelessness and being trapped, I think, has been quite highlighted um, for many people. The other thing I think you're sort of picking up trepidation is just children in in the mix um, in families and and kids' experience of family violence is greater, obviously, because of a lockdown sort of, you know, being in the home environment. So their exposure is increased, um, but they're not able to also get out, you know, go and ride a bike with some friends or, or whatever. And people in relationships where family violence does exist are really trying to manage the family violence on top of parenting but also COVID and lockdowns and that really does create a bit of a a pressure cooker environment. But, Tom, one of the things I wanted to draw people's attention to is a piece of work that Monash Uni did and it's through the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. This was actually some research that was done last year They actually uh, interviewed uh, a focus group of workers within the family violence field. And I might just draw on a couple of things that they said, you know, that picks up that trepidation question that you're talking about. But they really said that the, the report does find from a survey of practitioners that women experiencing family violence during COVID and the shutdown periods has had you know, an exponential effect on on risk, as I've mentioned. And more than half of the respondents reported that COVID had led to an increase in the frequency and severity of violence against women. And there's some interesting numbers, which I won't sort of go into. And just under half of the practitioners surveyed reported that COVID had resulted in increase, and I think this is interesting, in first-time family violence. So the pressure cooker sort of environment where there may be some preconditions for family violence pre-COVID has created just that sort of situation um, for people. So there was an increase in first-time family violence reported by women, most notably three-quarters of of the respondents, so these are practitioners, 
um, said that the pandemic had increased the complexity of women's needs with 55% reporting a significant increase in risk as well, which is the point that I said earlier in relation to um, what we're experiencing. It, it reported that the pandemic has led to the emergence of new forms of violence against women and that um, perpetrators are using COVID restrictions and the threat of COVID infection to include that sort of notion of control and a sense of movement for their partners as a result of that. And there's all sorts of anecdotal stories about some perpetrators saying they had COVID when in fact they didn't, which meant that the family might then need to isolate um, because they live with a perpetrator. You know, a whole, whole range of sort of examples like that. But, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think what's been great in Victoria and many other places is We've got off the mark pretty quickly in doing research about the impacts of, of something like this, which leads to that point about our learning as we move forward coming out of COVID. And I think that's the gem in some ways in a really fraught and sad and awful context and circumstance for women and their children and their pets is um, just that sense of what we've been able to learn and respond to, you know, as a result of COVID. I encourage people listening, we'll, we'll, we'll have a link to that uh, report for something you look at. It's, it's also an, a, not a bad insight into some of the dynamics of what control can look like uh, and how and how perpetrators use circumstances in, in such horrific ways to, to exercise that mm-hmm. control. It, it gives you an insight into some of, into some of that. Yeah. I wanted to take you um, somewhere else. You mentioned a, a bit about the, the research work that's been going on, but there was also some in Rosie's quote that you, that you quoted earlier, both about the progress that's been made in recent years leading up to the, the pandemic and, and a sense of turning the corner, yeah. but also Rosie's comment about it not being about services and systems, but being about people, women and their families, children, and efforts to put them at the centre. Um, the family violence sector has been in a long period of reform coming out of the Royal Commission. I'd love your observations just from your organisation about how that reform journey is going and kind of where you're heading and, and how much work there is still to do around mm-hmm. really putting people, victims at the centre of the services that you that you provide. Yeah, it's a great question, Tom, because it is that sort of setting and infrastructure that sits around service provision is interesting, but I am drawn, as are you, obviously, to Rosie's comment, you know, that that I mentioned earlier. It would be really remiss of me not to mention gender equity. So there's family violence and some of the issues, the really tragic and, and, and challenging issues that we've talked about, but in order to look at how we make those changes, which which is a segue into the reform side of things in Victoria, we've got to look at gender equity because it is that that kind of continuum of family violence, which is around, you know, prevention, early intervention, education. Then you go into the response end if someone's experiencing family violence through to recovery is typically how we would categorise sort of that continuum in family violence. But there's something that even sits before that that is just community-wide, 
you know, mainstream-wide gender equity and that women are at greater risk of exposure to COVID while in lower-paid um, jobs. Family violence increases during and in the aftermath of all disasters. And I spoke about, you know, some of those other layers in Victoria. More women are unemployed as a consequence of COVID and women are shouldering a bigger burden of unpaid labour in the home. So it's a segue into the reform environment, I think, but the gender equity side of things is so important, I think, to understand. In Australia, as we know, there's a lot of things going on at the federal political level around, you know, gender equity representation and behaviour. You know, it's important just um, for people to sort of reflect on that, I think, as, as something that really contributes to family violence. I think, it, I think your points also were well made just how, how much the pandemic has been a step backwards in a lot of the ways that we've been working to promote gender equity. You mentioned uh, women being more likely to lose their jobs or to work in, in industries affected. There's also been some research on unequal burden of additional um, childcare or, or homework that's come from those things. There's yeah. a raisin, range of ways in which the pandemic feels like a step back in relation to some of those gender equality measures that we we're hoping to move forward with. Oh, absolutely, Tom. And I think that's a really nice, nice, you know, in the context of really difficult work encapsulation of that. And Gen Vic is an org- a peak body in Victoria that look at um, gender equity, health promotion, etc. They just noted that before the pandemic, Australia was already going backwards to pick up on your point on the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index. We were 44th in the world, which was down from a high of 15th 20 years ago. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling. You just can't understand in contemporary Australia how some of that, (laughs) we could get to that point. Um, And there is a high risk that gender inequity will be worsened by the virus, which is sort of the points that I'm I'm just highlighting. So, yeah, some some work to be done, and and I th- I suppose that's a a good way to frame up the sector reform because gender equity and family violence is everyone's issue and everyone's responsibility. It's not just those of us that work in the sector. Getting back to exactly sort of Rosie's point. But in relation to the reforms, I've said consistently since I've come into my role in May last year is that if you were experiencing family violence or at the threat of family violence or working in family violence, Victoria has, as a jurisdiction, um, been leading uh, across Australia in relation to the reform, the policy, the injection of funding has been second to none uh, across the, the state, notwithstanding Commonwealth sort of contribution. And so the establishment of Family Safety Victoria as a result of the Royal Commission that was held in 2016 has set out a really, I think, excellent framework for the work that uh, needs to be done to just reduce a, a really shocking blight on, you know, our society. Some of the things that, you know, the Royal Commission looked at and then the reforms were legislative architecture and infrastructure uh, and reform there, awareness and community attitudes through organisations um, like Our Watch and, and um, some of the others that I've mentioned. But 
I think a really strong focus on victim survivors and holding uh, perpetrators accountable, I think, has been a really important shift. And even in our discussion, I think, you know, there's that journey people go through in their minds about, yeah, wow, perpetrator accountability is not maybe the way I would have described it prior to that being drawn to my attention. And I think that's been something that the reforms um, have, have done and are doing. Um, obviously, workforce is significant and, and funding the workforce and the foundation for the reforms uh, has been really important. And just driving change. I mean, reforms in and of themselves are exactly that. They are reforming either an existing system or building a new system or transitioning a system and, and service infrastructure. And I think that's what has been sort of strengthened. But to give an example, our organisation sort of seven years ago was 28 staff and $3 million turnover. And this year, we're 120 staff and about to be in next financial year, $20 million turnover. So if you look at sort of just from a, a, a growth and scale perspective, it gives you a sense, but it also shows the investment that's being made to fund um, and really put some significant grunt and effort behind investing in that sort of reform. The thing to sort of finish on the reforms, Tom, for me, that we really want to continue to focus on embedding victim survivors at the centre of my organisation's work and all of the work that we do, you know, across the sector, but in a policy context. And there's some great examples of um, a victim survivor advocacy uh, or advisory council in, in Victoria, but even at the really local level in organisations like ours, that victim survivor voice needs to be, I think, really prominent and build on what we're doing. Workforce we're all competing in some ways in the human service community sector for a similar type of workforce. And when you've got scaling up and growth like we have, the workforce supply and workforce skills and training, I think, are really important. Perpetrator accountability is something, as I've mentioned, that I think as part of the reform environment, you know, a focus on that. And children as a, as um, primary victims, uh, I think, are, are really important and emerging in terms of the um, sort of sorts of responses provided. And safe, accessible, affordable housing. And I know even in some of your other podcasts, I listened to Jill Callister's, you know, from a mental health perspective, housing, all roads often lead to safe, accessible, affordable housing when you're coming to these really big social sort of problems that we're trying to address. And the final one I would say is just um, the broader system, but particularly working with the courts and breaking down some of those very institutionalised, um, bureaucratic kind of systems. And there's some terrific examples of working courts, but I, I do think there's um, some areas of focus there. Can you tell us a bit about the experience of your workers in your organisation, kind of where they're at, gosh, eight, 18 months into this period of pandemic mm -hmm. plus an extraordinary period of growth and demand before that Um Exhaustion must be an understatement. What's the experience like for your workforce, and how does how are they experiencing things at the moment? 
It's a really good question to sort of hone in on their individual experience, Tom. You know, and the first thing I would say is I don't ever really want to start a new job as a CEO in a pandemic where I've, there's still staff that I've not met in person. Um, you know, we have a weekly check-in with all staff um, on Zoom, so mm-hmm. I know their faces in a Brady Bunch context, but I just have not met some of the staff. So my response to the question is with that context, I think, because it has been really challenging, as, as many other CEOs have experienced. One thing I would say is, Working in your, and we've had a hybrid model like some organisations because we've been an essential service, but we've had to manage social distancing, physical distancing in the office, um, you know, how we manage clients coming in and out. But we've really in the last six months been working at about 15% of staff in the office and the rest of the, and on a rotational sort of roster. So for those service facing, client-facing staff, they've at least had a bit of contact with each other and that sense of connection through going into the office, Um, whereas others in in some of our non-client-facing areas literally have not been in since, you know, May last year or, or thereabouts. What I'd like to illustrate, I guess, is the nature of privacy and the traumatic type of work that we're doing if you're if you're dealing with clients in your own home in your own lounge room that is difficult to manage and and we've got you know a whole sense of um, criteria and preconditions to manage privacy for clients but switching off when you're dealing with family violence related matters and you're working from home um, predominantly phone calls or, you know, Zoom calls or whatever, that's really hard to do that work-life balance, I think, whereas there's something about physically leaving your workplace, catching the train home or driving home, there's that sort of transition, but we've certainly noticed that that can be quite difficult and it and it has been for some of our staff, I think, quite isolating. Half of our staff are under sort of, you know, 38, 35. Some of them are in share uh, environments. Um, their home environment has been quite difficult. We've had to make some exceptions so that people can work outside of their own home environment because it's just not conducive to the work, but it's also really hard for them, you know, and and their fatigue and, and mental health. And the other thing I think is the pressure on leaders, and this can be at the local level, team leader, you know, managing a small team, right through to people that have sort of larger responsibility, just that cohesion and and gelling. And a lot of your other guests have talked about sort of that leadership piece in keeping people as motivated and engaged as they can. But the approach that I've taken is to actually allow, you know, people to feel pretty vulnerable and to feel fatigued because it is absolutely a byproduct of what we've experienced and you know I've mentioned to you previously that sort of the approach I've taken with individually and collectively with staff has been around um, sort of four areas empathy 
empower, enable and evolve? And, well, you know, what has that looked like and what have we experienced as individuals in the organisation at EdVos but as a group we'll do some reflective thinking around those areas? Uh, and, and, you know, one of the, the things that I think is really important is to learn from the learning that we've had over the last 12 months or so but it's all a work in progress. But, yeah, I, I think the key thing is the working from home um, and the impact that's had had on people when you're doing the work that we're doing can't be underestimated, the layer upon layer of complexity that people are dealing with. You began in your role during this period and so without the kind of existing face-to-face relationships that you might have drawn on in, in doing that, how have you... Have you found the ability to connect with people to do things like empathy from from often virtually and 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 from a, being a relative newcomer um, during this time? It's been hard, if I'm really honest. It, it, it's been difficult. It, it's that stuff that you do intuitively in person that changes when you're in an online environment. So you know, can we tick the boxes about things like? frequent weekly sort of check-ins, trying to be clear and transparent in our communication around COVID and, you know, have we got all the checks and balances around our COVID response team? Yes, all of those things are in place. But I'm I'm someone that's energised by people and physically being around people. So personally, as CEO, I found that quite difficult to, to do. And, and in my previous organisation, which actually was Expression Australia, which delivers services to the deaf community, I'd already been there eight years and, and went into COVID and the transition to working from home. But I knew the people and I knew the language, I knew the culture, and I knew the pressure points for individuals and the organisation. Whereas moving into the role at Edvos, I didn't didn't know those norms and cultural totems of the organisation. They just weren't there for me. So that, that's probably been a really sort of interesting reflection for me. And, Tom, I do want to, you, you mentioned hope, but I do want to just weave this in because I was lucky enough in 2018 to do the um, strategic perspectives in not-for-profit course at Harvard. Um, it, it's a scholarship through Harvard Club of Victoria which was a wonderful opportunity. But one of the things that one of the professors in the business school said to me that I just have at the back of my my mind all the time is he said hope hope is not a strategy. And I just thought, oh, wow, that is such an amazing thing. And apparently you can attribute that to... um, Apparently, Rudy Giuliani said it when, but apparently that's not the origins of it, but he actually said it when Barack Obama was elected president and he said, because change is not a destination, just as hope is not a strategy. And I think um, Obama had been talking about change, you know, as a destination. But I think about the course, you know, as, as a leader and CEO over the last 18 months, about hope is not a strategy and there's bits I've been asked to talk about this on a couple of occasions about my view is can hope be part of your strategy? And, in fact, if you think about what we've endured and experienced over the last 
18 months or so with COVID. I think it can, but hope is critical to achieving a strategy if it's based on what is possible, perhaps not highly probable, but possible, and the recognition that the degree of each is not necessarily equal. And that truly has been going on in my mind. And when hope is based on real-world experience, knowledge, tangible and intangible data, it can result in trust which is necessary to implement any strategy. And finally, that hope recognises the reality that failure happens and that success is not assured and prudence is needed to discern when you persevere and when you need to pivot. Our guest today has been Chris Matheson from Edvos. Chris, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Great. Thanks, Tom. It's been terrific. <laughs>